Get ready, Louisville. MindFest is coming to town. MindFest Lou is hosting its first annual mental health festival at the Roots 101 African American Museum on May 21st of this year. This is a free community event infused with music, food, entertainment, art, yoga, vendors, panel discussion, and more. MindFest's goal is to break stigmas surrounding mental health, connect families with mental health services, and create a fun, family-oriented learning environment that promotes mental health. For more information or to get involved, follow us at MindFestLou on Instagram. Welcome to The Wondering Mind, a podcast where we have candid conversations in hopes to break mental health stigmas and normalize speaking up about our mental health. Through this podcast, we will connect you to a diverse range of folks from all around the world who have struggled with their mental health, but have learned to weather through the storm. By listening to their stories, you may begin to feel empowered, less alone, and you may discover new ways that will help you navigate through your own mental health struggles. So sit back, relax, and remember, everyone's story matters. Welcome to the Wondering Mind podcast. I'm your host, Emily Elizabeth. Joining me today, I have not one guest. I am joined by two guests today, which is super exciting. I actually haven't interviewed two people at the same time on the show before. So joining me, I have Millicent and Darian. They're with Therapists for Protest or Wellness here in Louisville, Kentucky. And I'm absolutely honored that they have agreed to do the show with me. So welcome. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having us. Absolutely. I have wanted to have you all. I was telling Darian this earlier before we started recording. I've wanted to have you all on the show for like over a year. I actually found out about the organization because my dad, <laughs> he saw an article in UofL's like newsletter, I guess, that mm-hmm. was that wrote an article about you all, I think in 2020. And he was like, oh my gosh, these women are incredible. You have to have them on your show. And I was like, okay, okay. <laughs> So I checked y'all out and I was like, oh my gosh, they're, they're killing it. So I'm excited to, to talk to you all and learn more about therapists for protester wellness and you all. Me too. So let's just start there. Let's start with therapists for protester wellness. How did this organization come to be? Yeah, so it actually started off as like a recruitment from Facebook. It was during the movement that started here led by the murder of Breonna Taylor. And um, around that time, so many people were going out there and it was a lot of stress. And when the movement had a pivotal point, that's when we came in. So Tyler Gerth was murdered in June of 2020 and a lot of protesters were there that day. And we were already fighting one set of trauma with racial trauma, but now on top of that, we are 
doing something current more um, in our faces again. So after that, people were just like, yo, I don't know if I can do this anymore, or we really need help if we're going to continue. So that's when a friend uh, reached out to me who was leading some of the uh, marches. And they're like, yo, can you get some people down here? We need some mental health professionals really bad. So the next day I was on Facebook and I'm like, if you are a professional counselor, I don't care what... <laughs> discipline you're from, if you're a social worker, licensed clinical counselor, anyone, if you are in this field, come down here. And so, yeah, that's how we started. We all just met up and had a post at the Tyler Griff Vigil and helping people from there. That's wild. Cause I, I know I was down there and protesting when all that was going on and I was only down there a handful of times. So I know that there was so many folks who were down there every single day day in and day out all day. And then when that happened, like, I can't imagine the trauma that they had to add on to everything else they were already dealing with, but specifically like the mental health professionals as well, because mm -hmm. if you all were down there trying to do all of these things, like how were you all able to cope? I think one of the things that we learn early on in our training as professionals is how to carp compartmentalize all those things so you kind of have to really separate that trauma from you although it became really hard during this because we as black uh, professionals were literally experiencing the same thing simultaneously as the people we were helping so I think the group also gave us a way to channel our energy as helping professionals and doing it in a professional way but still in a protest way I guess you know like <laughs> yeah. to still be able to be in it and advocate for ourselves but also know that we're going to advocate for our community and the people who are really like they're taking this thing way farther than we are yeah so what were some of the things that you all did while you were down there to actually help because I know it could get pretty chaotic down there there was a lot going on at once so I know you all had like a separate area, like designated, you said it was set up by the Tyler Girth Memorial. What tools were you providing the community to help them in those moments? Yeah, so if there was some downtime, we went around, just checked in with people and let them know that we were mental health professionals and how they can be connected to resources. We also passed out something called a mental health first aid. And what it gave people was psychoeducational resources of what it means when you're done fighting for the day and you feel like you can't focus on work, you can't go to sleep and all these types of symptoms to look out for um, when you are doing activism work. And then we also coupled that with things that you can do to alleviate some of those symptoms. So we started to talk more about square breathing, grounding techniques. And sometimes I remember at some events, we would actually demonstrate what some of those things look like. Um, I think a big time where it was just really impactful was during the Nulu occupation. Uh, we had one of our members um, by the name of Elena. She was there with you know, the protesters during the time where the police interrupted everything and they were literally taking people and arresting them right then and there. And while people were hiding out, when people were hyperventilating, having panic attacks, she was there teaching people right then and there how to do grounding work. And just doing that with people, I think, helped show that 
we were people that they could come to. And it even actually, some of the people there were like, I want to continue doing something like this, take care of myself. Can you please hook me up with some type of ongoing long-term care? So we provided resources and actually did things in person as well. I can't imagine having to, to take people aside and try and calm them down in the midst of all that madness. Cause I actually watched that protest or that demonstration that day, like on Instagram, cause I wasn't able to go and it was, it was pretty horrendous. So I just commend you all for going down there or having some people down there to, to help those folks. Cause I, you know, that's a lot to process and a lot to go through. Yes, I think that the biggest lesson we're learning from all this is that if we're going to continue doing this work and having people be present, their hearts and minds cleared when they're doing this work, we're going to have to have some type of mental health support on this side. Um, I think that was very well known. And just with um, our world being more receptive to mental health care, I think that hopefully in the future, this is also something that we're always going to continue to do with activism work. So what made you all want to get into this, this industry? People ask me that all the time. And I say, I don't know. I think it's something <laughs> I've always wanted to do. Like, I really feel like my ancestors bestowed this upon me and said, this is what I'm going to do. I kind of known early on that I wanted to work with children in the less advantaged. Mm-hmm. And my mom's a social worker too. Um, so that probably has a big impact of me just being exposed to the less advantage my whole life. Like I volunteered as a baby, you know, little toddler. Like I remember being young, like five, six, seven, like going um, every Christmas, every holiday, donating, doing something like we always give back every single year in some capacity. So for me, I don't know, it just all kind of aligned. Then, you know, going into therapists for protester wellness, that is absolutely something that I never thought. I would ever be a part of in my life, like starting an organization, doing a thing, like organizing stuff and getting stuff to get, like, it's just so weird to me. And it just feels so authentic. Like oftentimes it doesn't feel like a job. It it just doesn't. I agree. I agree. It's so funny that you pointed that your mom is a social worker because my, both my parents are in the business world and somehow they came out with three kids who are all in social science. (laughs) (laughs) I have a sister who's in school for social work, another sister who is in law, she wants to work for public policy. So it's really funny, but I think what personally drew me to the field was I was a therapy child. So um, I was in therapy in high school. I started when um, I came to terms with my sexuality and um, it started off with school counseling. Then eventually it moved on to Uh, mental health counseling and um, just seeing the work that was done and seeing the change of perspective and outlook that I was given I knew right then and there that I definitely see a future in that so that's what kind of led me to it just having my own experiences and it's been so great to have it aligned with other parts of my life so me going then um, even uh encouraging family members to go, friends to go, um, because it wasn't really a big thing in my family or something that was really talked about. So yeah, that's what kind of led me to it. And like Darian said, just getting to a place like this where we're combining this with activism work, I never saw that coming, (laughs) but it is nice. And it's just, it comes natural for all of us because it literally is something that we love to do. And most therapists want to advocate, hopefully in some sort of form. So it's, it's an outlet for us really. So it all came together. Well, I think that's pretty amazing. It's, it just makes such a difference when you're doing 
work, but it's not actually, it doesn't actually feel like work because it just feels like something so natural, something that you were just kind of born to do and that you want to do, knowing that it's making such a huge impact in your community. So what are some other things that you all are doing within the Therapist for Protester Wellness within our community? Right now, our biggest thing is an ongoing scholarship that we are trying to provide mental health monetary resources for people in need. So that's kind of the biggest active thing that we have right now. Um, Because the demonstrations and protests have decreased, we don't get invited to things as much. We still have a Facebook group where we keep in contact and again, just passing resources, like letting people know, like I have this belief, like, you know, if you see someone in need and you have the resources, it's not their job to come to you and ask for the resources. Like you have the power. So you need to disperse rightfully so. And that's just what this group does. And it is ongoing. Like it it just doesn't stop. And again, it's so natural and it is an outlet for us, for us as clinicians. And we can process all this and lean on each other and remind each other to take our own medicine, you know, to follow our own advice (laughs) and our own treatment plans, X, Y, Z. But yeah, I mean, I mean, it's just really great. I just want to emphasize too what uh, Darian said about us having the resources and connecting people to that. I think that's especially important when considering the power differential. So I think this uh, that comment is especially important when we're talking about Black and Brown communities who are disenfranchised, who aren't connected, and who have restriction to those resources. So specifically talking about that community, I do believe, like Darian said, that that's totally our responsibility. So also with that, when we're talking about the scholarship funds, we are having a preference for black and brown people from underserved communities. So yeah, that's like our biggest project right now because we had to rebrand a little bit because the protests have stopped, but the activism work doesn't stop. So we try to find our way where we can be at this point right now. So right now, this is the biggest project that we have going on and we hope that it's a success and that eventually it could be that we do continuously. And I would add on, even with, you know, the continued decolonization, the work you said, like we really work actively to decolonize, you know, the field and just to spread awareness. So I think that's another big part of our job is to decolonize and normalize and validate um, and just to, start those conversations in any room that we're present in. I think that's so important. And and I also think it's pretty remarkable that you all are willing to take that on because as women of color, I feel like there's so much that you already take on as is trying to start those conversations, trying to provide those resources, trying to do all of this work. It's a lot. So throughout all of this work that you're doing, how are you all able to take care of yourself, take care of your own mental health. <laughs> we're laughing. Because <laughs> do you? I hope you do. <laughs> I mean, we lean on each other. Yeah. We make fun of ourselves, you know, just the <laughs> ongoing jokes of what are we doing? Like, we don't know what we're really doing, but you know, I guess, I guess we do. And I think that's a part of it that works and a part of it that is needed, especially for people of color loyalty and interpersonal connection is so big on us for people of color so for us to be with them side by side bumping shoulders you know it's just like it's just as much as we try to take care of the world that was very fulfilling for us so I think 
that took care of us. And then we had this group to lean on each other to also take care of one another. Yes, we practice grace in our group. So we, we do not operate like a normal job. When people tell us, you know, like I'm out for two weeks, I'm having whatever life situation is going on. Or, you know what? I'm just not up to it. I have kids at home and I just need a break. We do that all the time. No one's going to badger you about it. You need time away from the group. Have time away from the group. We give each other grace for meetings, people arriving late, having to cancel things. It's life, but we know eventually we're going to pick up. And I think just having that type of culture too um, really helps for people to stick with us for so long. It's almost been two years. And I just think that, yeah, we've lasted this long as a grassroots organization because we do give each other that grace. We do step out when we need to step out. There's always someone else who can take the low while someone takes rest. And even with that, we still take time out together too. So we meet up too. We have a pool party, especially in the summer, we had pool parties, going to eat, giving gifts to each other. So we have our own kind of like a sisterly relations that <laughs> go on too, so that we don't always have to be in the mental health world. You built that community because that's, that's something too, that I'm really glad, like, that's what, you, that's how you all kind of deal with this and cope is through a community that you've built because something that's kind of been a hot topic um, lately is, is the importance of community and how it can really help you maintain your sanity in the midst of darkness or stressful times or anything that's going on or work. Just, you know, I am so sorry. Can you, my cat is, I'm like, literally, (laughs) I normally record in my closet. Okay. But my uh, light in there is out. So I'm so sorry. You are fine. Can you all hang on one second? You are fine. Thanks. Hang on. (laughs) (laughs) Hang on. I'm at my house right now. I'm at Jasmine's, but that's what would have happened, or the cat would have walked across my keyboard by now. (laughs) I locked my dogs out. (laughs) They was loud at first. I was like, let me lock these dogs out. They'll do all this now. Shoot, he's crazy, old dogs. Your hair looks beautiful. Thank you, girl. I trimmed it. It looks really pretty. And I thought I trimmed a lot, but it still looks long. Thank you, girl. And I, I wrote down what you said because I felt like, can I be like our tag now? You said colonize, normalize, validate. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> that's what we do. That's what the damn. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, the part of community, I mean, you know, adults need a village too. We always talk about having a village to raise children, but what about us to the end of life? You know, we need those social connections. And as, you know, counseling professionals, we know that people live longer when they're connected to people. We need touch, we need hugs, we need a cry, we need eye contact, and we literally need those things, you know, to survive and to cope as humans. And we lean on each other, honey, because we only, we're the only people that really understand each other from the perspective we're in. That's what I was about to say too. So like to get all that attention and love and needs met by your own community, the people who look like you, the people who've been through what you've been through. So like on the other side of decolonizing, you're indigenizing and you're going back to the times of <laughs> your ancestors and how they worked through life. It was just like that. So I, I agree, Darian. Write that down. Yeah, because we constantly revamp. I don't know. We constantly, I think in that communication is a big part. We talk a lot, you know, 
I don't know. I think maybe it's like us, you know, walking the talk or practicing it because you have to communicate when you're vulnerable. You have to communicate when you need a break. You know, you have to communicate when you need something. And, you know, we do that and we practice that. And it just feels, it just really feels good. It does feel natural. Speaking of communication, I think a lot of folks struggle with that. And I don't know if it's just, I mean, in any community, no matter what background you are, I think, especially in America, I, for some reason, communication is like not something that everyone can do in a healthy way. Do you guys have any pieces of advice or tools for people that struggle with communicating? I mean, it's so important, kind of like everything you just said, it's the foundation for so many things. I think the foundation of communication, of course, when you are communicating, first things first, making sure that the person that you're talking to is in a state where they can receive it. I also think too, we talk a lot now too about using I statements. So when you are communicating how you feel or what your needs are, not putting blame on anyone else and making it about you because it is about you. Even if you feel like you didn't like the way something came off from someone else or how they made you feel, it is realistically your experience so you have to say I <laughs> but All I think can stand yeah can stand yeah yeah and that's when you give that person their chance to talk about their reality so I feel like that gives it like an equal playing field where there's less defense is when you use those type of statements but just making sure both people are in a place where they're not being reactive, but responsive. So that's, again, making sure that people are able to receive the information and just making sure when you're talking, making it about you. And I think that it's so funny that we use so much time with kids to teach them emotions and feelings. And when you're an adult, it's like you lose it all. And so- Literally. <laughs> yeah, so like even having to go back to those words, like in therapy sessions, like with, work with most adults and I know Darren you probably can agree you're literally going back to the basics of trying to teach adults to use their words use so words. messed up like that's Bad. happy Bad. <laughs> and it helps a lot when you start communicating with people especially a partner or co-worker family member when you start from those basics of I like I feel really sad today or like going through that made me really angry and so just, I think going back to that, that foundation of eyes and those very simple emotion and feeling words helps to get points across more than you'll ever know. And I would add to that, you know, Emily, what you were saying about how in America, you know, that's a big thing. And, you know, we have all these cultures and these people with different backgrounds. And, you know, there's some research about communication and racism, how communication is one of the biggest barriers between the races to create a common ground of understanding. You know, I've talked to Millicent about this probably early on, just a little validation that I've gotten from the white peers, because it's like they hurt us. That communication wasn't a barrier. Like we all had the compassion, the understanding, the want of the same thing. So when you got this person with this accent and this person with this background, there was no translating and no microaggressions in the midst of it it was just truly and it still is you know like we said we're we're trying to revamp our brand and you know do all these things and expand so we have a lot of meetings and the way they go is just like wow like I, I just love it like it's I don't know 
it fills me up. I'm getting like, my heart's a little warm. I think it's, that's the power of having the oh, culturally sensitive ally because it can go the other way too. But I think with our group, luckily we've attracted people who have done a lot of work. So we don't run into a lot of problematic things being said or done. There has been times where maybe we've had to say a couple of things to allies, but then even still, the allies that we have in our therapist group, they are so receptive to feedback and leadership of Black women. So it's been super, super easy to make sure that cultural sensitivity and awareness grows. So I think that is helpful. Um, I know everyone has a different way of including allies in their work, especially with the local movement. There is a lot of allyship in Louisville. It's huge, um, actually. But I think what makes a difference, you'll learn from this movement, it's like, which ones are culturally aware have done the work? Um, and also, if they need to be corrected or told, like, that's not appropriate or that's not helpful to the goal or mission, just being able to receive feedback and critique without taking a personal understanding. It's not about them. It's about liberation of these underserved communities. It's super, super helpful. So speaking of allyship, can you all just explain what is the preferred allyship for your community, like for therapists for protester wellness? So if say someone wants to help get involved, what is the ideal ally? I think someone who's actively present. So you'll see a lot with the movement. There's different ways to be activists and all are very valid. But with our group specifically, we encourage some type of active presence. So you might not be leading of social action, but you're there ready to move and to do whatever needs to be done, whether that's providing food or helping organize our directory, whatever maybe uh, needs to be done. So if our group it was Black woman-led, but the allies were there to help us make our directory, to help us organize things, to make sure we have all the necessary supplies that we need. So just being someone who's actively present, who is spreading the word through their networking channels, I mean, that's to me like the optimal <laughs> and epitome of a great ally is just taking what needs to be done, listening and hearing what needs to be done and actively doing it, being proactive about the needs of the movement. Darian, do you have anything to add? No. <laughs> I agree. Uh, the, I, I just thinking of the allies in our core group, how they just listen. They just, you know, they just kind of give it here and then let the people of color then, I guess, translate that and make that available. Like they... Mm -hmm don't really try to overstep boundaries and things like that. I mean, which is great. And they do listen and they do give their resources that we don't have, that people of color just don't have. Um, and their willingness to do that and their compassion behind that as well is truly genuine and you can see it. So it's really cool, you know, to connect with some allies and people. It's been awesome. Yeah, listen is the key word that I kept hearing you both say. And something that I've learned is, absolute top priority when it comes to the movement in general. And I think that's so wonderful that you have found folks in Louisville, Kentucky, who are willing to listen, are willing to support, are willing to let people of color, Black women lead and support. And I think what you all are doing is absolutely incredible. Thanks. I think Louisville is a, I think we're a very different city, just knowing the history of Louisville, from all the way back to, you know, slavery and then the populations we had and 
you know, Louisville's kind of a unicorn, you know, it is pretty open. You know, when they say family friendly and food friendly, we really kind of are. That's what we based on. Like it's weird. And you know, just really going through the movement, it's like, wow, like white people showed up, like white people showed up in Louisville. You know, and then that's just awesome, you know, it's just awesome to know. I mean, we talked about it earlier, how the protests have basically completely dissipated over the past, what, I mean, how long has it been? Has it been two years already? It's like a year and a half. I don't even know. I don't know. Oh my God. What day is it? I don't know. <laughs> but it, you know, it, it's, it, that's disheartening in a way, but at the same time, it's not because I feel like, and correct me if I'm wrong, I feel like still so much work, advocacy work is being done behind closed doors, behind the scenes, you know, with everything trying to make changes here in Louisville, Kentucky specifically. So. Yeah, it is hard. I think with like our group was lucky to have great allyship, but there was definitely a lot of performativity too in Louisville because it was so big. There was a spotlight on us. If you didn't support the movement, your business is going to drown. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) so yeah, that, that's the part that is disheartening. I talked to a lot of people, a lot of activists in the movement, and we talk about how it feels like a blessing and a curse that the movement was here. So it's a blessing because we did get attention. We got a lot of funds to help a lot of uh, the grassroots uh, initiatives and things like that. And we did bring attention and we do have some change, but at the end of the day, it, our biggest goal was to see the police officers <laughs> convicted. And we're and still our- waiting. Yes, and we, there's other changes that we want that I feel like kind of went under the rug a little bit. So it, it's a blessing and a curse. So that's why I think we're still here today because we know that there's a lot of work to be done, even though we don't have a million news stations here anymore. Yeah, there's still some things that we have to hold our city and our legislation um, accountable for. Yes, and I think that's one of the biggest barriers for us in this state is the disconnect between the younger generations and then our commonwealth. Like, we know who's sitting in Frankfurt. We know who our politicians are in Kentucky, for Pete's sake, from the backwoods of something. Like, we know who these people are. So that is still truly a big disconnect, again, from Louisville and the rest of the state. And that kind of sucks because we do lose traction in that way because we get you know, they just gonna hush us up, you know, oh, they in Louisville, we just hush them up, they there, we got all the power, because we're in all the other 50 something counties or whatever, and making all the rules, so like Millicent said, we have to hold our legislation, legislation accountable, we have to, if we don't do nothing else going forward, we're gonna have to do that. Mm -hmm. And keep these grassroots organizations living and thriving, and making sure people are still donating, and there's, there's still work to be done, I think that it was good, and I think it, there's a lot of lessons learned from it. So hopefully we can take those and see how we move forward as a community. Yeah, there is still a lot of work to be done and it it can get overwhelming. But I think one of the cool things that we have now in our time is social media, because it sounds like you all have been able to maintain such a strong community and support system through social media. And I think since the protests have kind of died down, there are other ways that we can utilize now, like such as social media to spread information, to provide resources, to keep that momentum going in some shape or form, which is, is pretty cool. Cause I know like say 50 years ago, they didn't have that. So if the protests stop, you know, 
things kind of even more got swept under the rug. So I think it's good that we do at least have that. But I also love that within our community, I think mental health specifically in Louisville is starting to become more of a trend. We're seeing more organizations pop up, become more, you know, recognized. Um, And I think that's really good because I think, especially like with our unique situation here with Brianna Taylor and Tyler Girth and everything like that, having mental health in the forefront is so important. That's still a barrier for us again in Kentucky. Um, I went to college out of state freshman year and all that stuff. And um, I would have people tell me like, oh, Louisville's really good for social services, right? And like, you're like, what? (laughs) We are one of the better states in social services, believe it or not. Are we? (laughs) We are, we are, we really are. But the disconnect with our, like, we're one of the states with the more resourceful social services, but we're one of the top states in child abuse. We're one of the top states in child pornography. We're one of the saddest states. We have one of the highest rates of kids in foster care. Yeah, I think we have a lot of programs because we see those issues, and it, but I still don't think it's necessarily always quality care or accessible I guess it's probably like are we because so I do think we have a lot of programs because we child abuse and all these things like that so we have programs but it really is like you have to start thinking about the quality of care and the accessibility um so I am happy that we are I hope as our mental health scene grows in Louisville that we make it more accessible and that's why we were like let's do something with the, I mean, financial situation here because that's the biggest barrier. And so, um, yeah. In our, state, our insurance companies are decreasing rates in our state. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's a blow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's tough. It's happening like as we speak, like therapists are dropping out and canceling their contracts with insurance companies because they do not want to pay therapists. And we have an influx of a need of people who need real resources. And it's like, it's kind of like our city just throws money at what's popular. But if we really wanted to make change, we would do something about the homeless population. We would do something about us Mm -hmm. being one of the states that prescribes more medication than any other state. That's a problem. We're definitely up there for that. Yes. (laughs) That's a problem. You know, so like, yes, we have all these things, like you said, but it's not, it's just money thrown and not quality. Yeah. Stunt a lot of uh, profitable uh, companies and it, it it hurts us a lot. So I do think that while we do continue to, I think we have a responsibility too, as we do keep on throwing out there, you need therapy, you should go to therapy. <laughs> and then people are like, okay, well, that's great and all, but who's going to pay this bill? I think that we have to find more ways to make it um, accessible. And then also too, Darian, we have to think about ourselves too. And it's really hard to make a living as therapists and a lot of therapists who make, who work second jobs sometimes, um, <laughs> to make ends meet because you're just not even paid well here in Kentucky to be a therapist. So yeah, there's definitely needs to be changes. Hopefully I'm going to be hopeful and just hope that with this newfound attention that mental health is getting, that something changes soon. Yeah. It sounds like well, we've known that the healthcare industry at large is completely fucked up um, <laughs> and totally toxic. But hearing you all say, because you all know you're inside, like you you know the inside scoop on different organizations here in Louisville. So it's 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 important to hear that and to know. I mean, we knew that accessibility was an issue, but now it's even more of a top priority knowing that a lot of these programs, like, yeah, they 
provide, but they really don't provide for everyone because not everyone can afford it. So making sure that we provide resources that actually help people of all different backgrounds and financial, you know, situations is super important. And it sounds like you are trying to do that in some shape or form too. We are through our scholarship program. We are trying and we really hope to get that, those funds out and launch like hopefully by the end of this month. With we have a meeting after this <laughs> with our group. We have a lot of late night meetings, a lot we of late. <laughs> so we're, we're talking. So we uh, let's talk a little bit about it, Darian. So, yeah, with the pr program. The recipients of the funds will have four or five sessions paid for. And if they want something ongoing, they can make some type of agreement with the practices that they are connected to. And so, yeah, we'll have an application that will ask for their needs and their level of need and what type of therapist they're looking for. Then they'll be matched up with the practices that we've vetted for. So practices that we've worked uh, alongside with during the movement, especially people that we know will give quality care. So one of the ones that match their needs the most, and then, yeah, we'll send the funds their way to that practice and they'll have their four to five sessions taken care of. So it's kind of like an EAP program that you have for a job. So, but this time it could be for someone that you know <laughs> who can appeal to like the needs that you have. So we're really excited about it. Yeah, I hope we can keep going. I know this is just step one and I can just imagine. Yeah. I think you all, I mean, because therapists for protester wellness, because just because it has protester in it, I mean, you're therapists for wellness. Like you are here to stay. You're here to provide wellness and resources for the community. It sounds like, I feel like the more people learn about your organization, the bigger and it's going to get honestly, because I think again, the work, I can't say it enough. The work that you all are doing is incredible. And I wish more people set up programs like what you all are trying to do to provide these free sessions for folks that can't afford it. Because again, if anything else is to improve within our community or like the fucking world at large, quite honestly, it starts with your mental health point blank period. And I think that the fact that you all are so engaged and focused on that and starting from the foundation of trying to get to the root of the problem and help them for free is absolutely incredible. So y'all should be really proud of what you're doing for real. Thank you. You're welcome. So in regards to the, the quote unquote EAP program, the, the, the scholarship program, how can folks, can people donate to that or Yes, all day, every day. We have a Venmo account, so it's really accessible to use. It's um, T4PWLU, L-O-U, and there's an at sign before all of that. So yeah, we always have that open, and all the funds that you want to go to that, just put like hashtag scholarship, and it'll go right to those uh, funds. Perfect. And then for anyone that wants to follow along, get involved, reach out, where can they find you all on social media? Yes, Facebook and Instagram at Therapist for Protester Wellness. Perfect. Well, I just want to say thank you all for joining me on the show. It was an absolute pleasure. And I love, I love learning about what other local organizations are doing and what they're fighting for and what they're accomplishing because it gives me hope. <laughs> for real, like our community is 
is in dire need of some hope. And I, again, I just want to thank you all for the work that you're doing and the heart and the, the time and the energy that you put into it. It doesn't go unnoticed. And I also want to mention that you all are going to be involved with MindFest. Yeah. I'm so pumped. <laughs> I think Millicent, you're going to be on our panel and then we're going to have you both uh, at the event the whole day with a booth providing your resources talking about therapists for protester wellness. So I'm hoping that you'll get a lot of exposure that day as well. And that people will get to meet you and find out how incredible you all are. I know we're so excited. And I hope like just like how we feel about our scholarship fund. I hope that this is something that we continue doing annually too. That's awesome. That is the goal. The goal is actually to spread it into every single state in the United States so that every year they have their own annual festival, but we'll start here first. (laughs) Absolutely. I love it. Well, thank you all for joining me. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you for taking the time out of your evening to chat. And thank you again to the listeners for tuning in to another episode of the Wondering Mind podcast. Remember to maintain your brain and keep on wondering. 